hello everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman and it's my privilege to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. If you're joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, I want to welcome you. And if you are a returning viewer, I want to welcome you back. For those who are new to us, Israel Policy Forum works to educate policymakers, Jewish community leaders, and leaders of the next generation to be informed and effective in their support of U.S. efforts to advance a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict consistent with Israel's security. In this critical moment, we are pleased to continue with our regular Tuesday video briefings. The impending arrival of a new administration in Washington presents important opportunities for our efforts to ensure a Jewish, democratic, and secure future for the state of Israel and a robust U.S.-Israel relationship. To stay informed about our work and our upcoming programs, I encourage you to visit our website at www.israelpolicyforum.org to become an email subscriber. On our website, I also invite you to check out our policy director, Michael Koplow's weekly column, and information on how young professionals can get involved through our IPF Atid program. I also encourage you to tune into our podcast, Israel Policy Pod. To keep all of our work going, we rely on your generosity. So to all of our supporters on this program, I want to take this opportunity to say thank you. If you view Israel Policy Forum as a vital resource, want to help ensure the success of our initiatives in the year ahead, and have not already done so, then I encourage you to make a contribution today at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Now on to today's program. In the months leading up to the American presidential election, we witnessed a number of historic diplomatic developments between Israel and Arab states in the Middle East and North Africa. While it may be a bit hard to recall amidst the post-election fog, those were nonetheless highly consequential achievements including the normalization of ties between Israel and the UAE and Israel and Bahrain, as well as the beginning of a process with Sudan. With the new administration taking office in January, it's worth considering what will happen with this process, which began under the auspices of Donald Trump's presidency. To help us better understand where the Israel-Arab normalization process stands, we are fortunate to be joined by Dr. Moran Zaga, Dr. Zaga is a political geographer focused on Middle East borders. She researched the evolution of the UAE's borders at Tel Aviv University, and she's currently a postdoc at the University of Chicago, although she remains in Haifa due to the pandemic restrictions. Studying historical, political, and social boundaries in the Middle East, Moran is a policy fellow at Mitvin, the Israeli Institute for Regional Foreign Policies. Her current study at Mitvim deals with the existing and potential cooperation between Israel and the Emirates. With that, Moran, thank you for joining us. So we are now several months out from the historic announcement of normalization between Israel and the UAE and Israel and Bahrain. Now that some of the fanfare has subsided, where do these agreements stand? And what steps have actually been taken towards implementing these agreements? Well, first of all, Susie, thank you for having me here. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here in this historic period. I think uh, as an Israeli, it's, it's great to speak about a country, namely the UAE, that was not uh, under the spotlight uh, of the Israeli public. And uh, I think the audience that is, is listening to us 
It's important country to Israel. It's important country to the region. And this step is only one evidence of that. Now for your question, I think that um, uh, regarding the wet, where we are now today, so bureaucratically, uh, the state-to-state -state level, uh, we are pretty much behind that. Uh, we solved that. It took a little bit time, more than we expected, but this is uh, much behind us. Now we are on the ministerial level. So the ministers on both sides should sign MOUs, should meet with each other, uh, should reach an agreement because we need to understand that the political culture in the Gulf is very, very different from the political organization or the uh, environment in Israel. Uh, they have the top-down approach. Well, if we want to uh, engage with uh, formal institutions and organizations, we need to start from the governmental level and then go down to the department of the, of the university or to a different uh, public organization. So the ministers should talk with each other, should reach agreements, and we are not right after this stage. We are still within that. Um, and uh, if we're talking about culturally where we are today, so still we see the enthusiasm continues. I mean, it didn't stop. Um, actually, vice versa. I mean, it's like a shiduch. It's a weird stage where there's like a, a lot of buildup, right? And you want to meet each other, the sides want to meet each other, but we can't because of the pandemic, because of the visas that hasn't been solved yet. So this is another issue that hasn't been uh, uh, clearly solved, but it will. And um, and also the, the, the prime ministers that insist on going first before the ministers allowed to allow to visit the UAE. This is another step that we should like be uh, 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 should expect and then to overcome. But once the door will be open, once this door will be open, we'll see a, a, a massive wave of movements from both sides. That that's where we are today. Okay, that's that's encouraging. Um, what, Moran, what obstacles have emerged towards implementation of these agreements and do any roadblocks remain in your opinion? Um, yeah, so for the roadblocks, uh, I think that, um, as we said, so bureaucracy is a very important thing. I know it's a boring issue, but it's an important one because uh, the ministers should really finalize the way to work with each other. This is a new country for us. If we're talking also about Bahrain, these are two new countries for us. So there's not like a textbook on how to be working with these new countries. And uh, these are new systems also for the Emiratis and Bahrainis to work with Israelis. They used to channel through one or maybe two organizations and very, very several key figures in Israel like mostly, mostly the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. But now the networking will be spread on several uh, organizations, leading or organizations that will uh, take charge on these ties, not only the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but actually every ministry in Israel is now interested in developing ties with Bahrain and the UAE. So that's from our side. I'm not sure about the other side, but I see that as well from their side. So we need to learn each other. So that's one obstacle. It's not an obstacle. It's just something that we need to overcome. Uh, and we will work through it. But what will remain, as for your question, is that um, there will be political challenges all 
along the time. I mean, it, it will pose a continuing threat to the relations. For example, an escalation with the Palestinians. Or think about unilateral military operations somewhere in the Middle East made by Israel or claimed to be made by Israel. So where will Bahrain and where will the UAE uh, stand when it will hear about these operations that were not, for example, coordinated with them? That is something that will pose a challenge. So on the political sphere, I believe that will be, there will be so many. What are the primary fields of cooperation between Israel and the UAE that have emerged in the past few months? Wow, Susie, so many. Like in every sector, every aspect, every field. I'm in a place where I'm, you know, uh, uh, people know that I'm a researcher of the UAE and the Gulf and uh, many things. I, I, I hear things all the time because sometimes they, they just tell me or they, they want to consult but uh, these are on the civil channel. So there are already musicians and tourism and uh, like, you name it, uh, sports, everything. And on the business sector as well, uh, medicine, research, uh, of course, security will always be there for the two. So it was, and it will be a main thing to be uh, for a partnership between the sides and diplomacy, which is now overt and much more wide and open. So every aspect, Susan, really. Do you expect to see a wide, uh, uh, a burgeoning of tourism to uh, um, Abu Dhabi for Pesach, for example? <laughs> <laughs> indeed, uh, uh, indeed so, yes. Yeah. Uh, looking back, what conditions led the UAE and Bahrain to proceed with normalization with Israel? How was this informed by the UAE's understanding of its own role in the Middle East? Right. So this is um, this is a very important question that leads to why why uh, why it started from the beginning and why it started from that part of the Middle East. I mean, uh, we we were always used to think in terms of what will Saudi Arabia do, and now there's like this new country, uh, United Arab what? I mean. So um, the thing is that uh, the country, the United Arab Emirates, let's talk about this first and then about Bahrain, uh, is situating itself as a regional power in the last decade. I think that the Arab Spring had its own consequences, uh, for not for those who suffered from it, not only for them, but for those who watched it from the sidelines, and we're thinking of what is their role or what is their place in the Middle East, in the new Middle East, where uh, uh, after all of this turmoil. So the UAE saw itself as a stable country in this uh, very chaotic region who wanted to take a charge. Every country that suffered from a crisis, uh, from a regime fall or something like that, the UAE saw from the sidelines how Iran, Qatar is, uh, the Turkeys are influencing, get, getting more and more influence in these failed states and the um, moderate, let's say moderate uh, 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 countries in the region are left behind to see that happening. So the UN and the Saudis understood it and they thought that they should take a more proactive approach. So that's the proactive approach of the Emiratis. That's what's happening. 
I mean, it's only it's it's not only the get the getting into wars with Yemen, with Libya, and be there, just be there to confront the other sides, other ideological sides of radicalism and extremism. It's not only that; it's also by a soft power pro- approach, with going through arbitrations and um, and and aid and also this peace agreement that we saw today. And for Bahrain, it's a totally different story. It's just, it's aligning itself with uh, with the Emiratis and the Saudis. And it's more like a cultural statement or ideological statement to be on that side of history. And when you mentioned Bahrain, if I'm not mistaken, there's a... Um tripart summit that's either taking place today or taking place this week between the United States, Bahrain, and Israel. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? What, what do you think is uh, what their plan is and, and what, if anything, you expect to come out of, of that summit? So there are a lot of things that we uh, see today between Bahrain and Israel. Uh, tomorrow is the visit of the, I think, the, uh, uh, the foreign minister of the Bahrain in Israel. And next week, there is going to be another delegation from the higher education and the uh, uh, cultural uh, offices to Israel. And they're also going to meet uh, high-level officials. So I think that we are going to see a lot of these kinds of uh, delegations also from Bahrain and the UAE in Israel and vice versa. Uh, As everybody knows, in just over two months, Joe Biden will be sworn in as president of the United States. Since these normalization deals were championed by the Trump administration, do you expect anything to change with Biden in office? Well, first of all, we assume that uh, it started under the Trump administration. I'm not saying that it did not, but if we're looking at uh, on the bigger process, as I said, of uh, the U.S. situating itself as a regional power, it started, I think, uh, I, I, would, I would locate it under the Obama administration when uh, the U.S. started to, to be less and less involved, militarily speaking, in the Middle East, in um, in conflict and to be more and more focused on domestic affairs. And this is something that, of course, has been going on on the uh, 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 Trump's administration. And the deal of the century is, is a great ex- example of that because under the Trump's uh, administration, there were like the involvement, involvement through agreements, um, uh, through treaties and through these initiatives, peace initiatives, but once the UAE and Saudis were under attack by Iranians, uh, the UAE was not there to help them. So that's an important thing to understand, that these countries thought that they need a new allies or regional allies to overcome these uh, very, very immediate challenges. And uh, the deal of the century is not there to solve their, um, uh, their security problems. Uh, so I think that that was like a, 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 an important turning point in their views of how to how, how to lead the region into a new era. And if we're talking about Biden administration, so um, I think that uh, if we, if Biden will go through a more softer approach towards Iran, for example, for example, I'm not saying that that what will happen. We'll, we'll have to see, and uh, we'll have to wait and see. But I think that it, it will only strengthen, uh, strengthen sorry, these new political uh, uh, alliances because 
the uh, the idea of uh, the shared enemy it's not only an idea it's not only a title or a slogan it's a true enemy for for the UAE for the Saudis for the Bahrainis for even Kuwait who does not I think understand that and for Israel it's a true threat so this is some so if Biden will suffer we suffer his uh, his uh, his approach toward Iran I think it will only bring us closer that's what I believe you Well, I'm going to ask you a follow-up question on that in a second. That's really interesting what you just said. Um, but just uh, focusing on, again, on the incoming administration, Juan, um, how do you see a new American administration impacting the outlook of the Emiratis and other Gulf states, including Saudi Arabia, Oman, Qatar, Kuwait, toward the United States' role in the region? And does this impact their desire to open ties with Israel? Right, so it really it's really dependent on the how uh, how much and in what way the you the sorry the, the American administration will be involved in the region uh, I think I think that uh, if the United States uh, states will stay uh, as it is today on the sideline it will strengthen uh, uh, the the Qatari's uh, alliance for example with Turkey that we see today in the last years Uh, three four five years maybe um, and uh, and that's that's like one consequence of that but there will be so many other consequences for example uh, Saudi Arabia will have to rethink about what is what is its role in the in the region in the in the uh, the Saudis are a, a political symbolic leaders of the region And uh, maybe, maybe with the U.S. Uh, 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 focusing on its domestic affairs, the Saudis will have to be the security shield of the region instead of the Americans. So this is an important story that we'll have to face in the near future. And, uh, of course, Israel is a natural ally for those who are feel threatened by the lack of the uh, American security umbrella in the region. So, Moran, I want to follow about Iran, because much of the Gulf rapprochement with Israel has been attributed to the shared threat perception of Iran, as well as displeasure with the United States over the nuclear agreement with Tehran negotiated under President Obama, the JCPOA. Just yesterday, we witnessed Israeli ambassador to the United States, Ron Dermer, sharing a stage with his Emirati and Bahraini counterparts While he implored President-elect Biden not to re-enter the Iran deal, in what ways does the prospect that the Biden administration uh, might enter the Iran deal, re-enter uh, the Iran deal, affect the Gulf states' approach to Israel? So I think again, as I said, it will, it will call for all post countries to work to get together. That's what, that's what like it's very natural to happen. And Uh, we can add to that another point. Another important point is that the ability of the Iranians to now purchase uh, uh, arms and weapons. So this is something that uh, was, uh, I think, also on the minds of the Emiratis when they approached Israel as a political and a security uh, ally. Uh, so I think that with all of these cards coming together into the table, about the uh, new administration and its uh, uh, and what would be his approach toward Iran about the opening of the uh, ability to for Iran to purchase arms and weapons 
all of these are on stake right now, are, are, are on, on the minds of the countries in the region that are feel threatened by this, uh, uh, by this genuine threat. Since normalization between Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain, we've also seen the start of a process with Sudan, which, by the way, I just want to mention of the three countries, Sudan is the only country that ever was at war with Israel. Um, while this figure should perhaps be taken with a grain of salt, President Trump has claimed that as many as 10 more Arab states are waiting in the wings to normalize with Israel. Um, do you think that's uh, realistic? And if so, which country might come next under a Biden administration and why? Well, to be frank, Susie, uh, I'm not sure. I know that it's like the number one question in every interview <laughs> and it's natural to be curious about it. I know, I know. But like every guest will be a wild one. <laughs> so I'll not do that. But um, uh, but I th I'll tell you what. I, I think that what we are hoping now is that Biden will work on first reconciling or pacifying the relations between the Palestinians and the United States. This is an important one stage. And on the next stage, to pacify, reconcile the Palestinians with Israel. And uh, on another level, we are hoping for Biden uh, by that to add value to the peace agreements with Jordan and Egypt, which suffered the lack of legitimacy in the past uh, 25 or more years with Egypt. So these are the two things that I'm hoping that are not like what will be the next country to, to make peace with Israel, but what can we achieve from the uh, countries or the partners that are we are already engaged with? And there is a, a lot to do on that aspect. Well, on what prompted the UAE and Bahrain to go first? How does their approach differ from the outlook of Oman, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? So um, let me put Saudi Arabia on the side for a minute. The UAE is much more powerful than all of the others. Uh, it has a legitimacy, a domestic legitimacy, a very wide one, and it's the most stable country in the Middle East, according to every uh, ranking in the world. Uh, there is like the Fragile State Index, for example, which is a very well-known index, and the UAE for the last decade, every year, it was uh, ranked the highest within the Middle East countries. So it's a, potent, uh, it's a potent factor to understand when we're talking about which country can uh, have the bold to do such a step. So uh, the UAE is there. Uh, while other countries, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they're on the same place, even if they wanted to. Uh, now, if we're talking about Saudi Arabia, so uh, in opposed to Saudi Arabia, uh, the Emiratis has an interest to open themselves and to be part of an international community. Saudis are much more closed. So that's another uh, uh, important issue to understand in why going open uh, to other, not only to Israel, by the way, but to other cultures, to other nations, to be a multilateral platform for, 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 for international events, for like everything, not only Israel, but Israel is a part of that. And... Uh, uh, um, yeah, and again, if, we, if we're talking about, uh, you asked me about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and how they differ from each other. So I think that there is uh, one thing that we need to understand uh, that the difference between 
these governments, uh, how they perceive the leadership of the Palestinians and how they perceive the Palestinian cause or the Palestinian society. These are two different things and I think that we should differ between them because uh, the Emirati uh, leadership and the Palestinian leadership are hostile to each other at the moment, but uh, the Emiratis are very much committed to the Palestinian cause. Just to follow up on Saudi Arabia, because of course there are so many variables that are going to change uh, once the Biden administration comes in. I'm referring specifically to the fact that the Saudis have enjoyed a very close relationship with the Trump administration, you know, MBS and Jared Kushner in particular, but they clearly have had this very close relationship. Um, one could argue that they have not really been held accountable by the United States for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, who was a resident of the state of Virginia. And I know there's, there certainly has been some uh, sentiment, at least in the U.S. Congress, to do something more robust. So it'll be interesting to see if anything happens on that front. And then, of course, the role that the Saudis have played in the war against Yemen, which, again, there were attempts by the Congress to impose sanctions on the Saudis for that. So, I mean, I, th- I just think Saudi is very interesting from so many different perspectives in terms of what do they expect from an incoming Biden administration? I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. What do the Saudis ex- expect from Biden? Or, not? or, hope, or hope for? Yeah. <laughs> so I think that the, the Saudis took like a, a, a one step backwards from their foreign policy. Uh, 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 proactivism. Uh, I think that they're now much more concerned with domestic politics. And due to all these things that you mentioned, I think they just went through a low profile phase, which will, uh, they need a little time to get back into the regional scene. And then they will try to reach out again to the new administration and to see how they are finding themselves again in the region. Now, think about that, Susie, that Saudi Arabia used to be the, uh, 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 the regional leader uh, like without, any, uh, without any competition to the region. And now this small country, the sister country, uh, the UAE next to it, its neighbor, is taking the, the lead by taking such a bold move and uh, and doing the, this uh, peace or normalization with Israel. And where are the Saudis? We haven't heard anything from them. So is this a leader? Uh, I think that it's, I, I think it, it's a bigger concern from the Saudis of how do they find themselves in the region before they approach to the American administrations. First, they, they should see themselves in the inner circle within the Gulf states and to see where they align with them. Uh, turning to another country, Moran, Qatar has emerged in recent years as an important player in the Palestinian sphere, but Doha is itself politically isolated by its neighbors. What is the Qatari approach to Israel, and how has it been impacted by the normalization agreements announced so far? Well, the, uh, the, the uh, Qatari approach toward the normalization is so negative, so negative. We see in, in Al Jazeera uh, a, a lot of uh, provocation uh, uh, towards the UAE. Uh, as we all know, the Qataris, uh, they are hosts of the uh, Hamas leadership and they support them. 
And it's, an, it's not only a political alliance, it's also an ideological alliance, which is another important issue to understand. It's not only, for example, when uh, Egypt is called to negotiate between, the, between Hamas and Israel or between the Hamas and the Fatah, Egypt has a political stand, it has a political alliance. But when Qatar is called to do so, Qatar has also an ideological alliance, which makes it more deep, which makes the, uh, 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 the, uh, the difference or the, the, um, uh, how would I say, the conflict between Qatar and its neighbors uh, a deeper one, because it's a cultural, ideological, very deep, a tough uh, a crisis to, to overcome so I think that the Qataris are using this normalization in order to, you know, like push into the, to the uh, Emiratis. But um, you know what, to be frank, I won't be surprised if eventually the Qataris will try to see themselves through the normalization themselves. And I th- I'll tell you why. I think that there are, uh, it, it, I'm not saying that it will happen. I'm just saying that I'll not be surprised because they are engulfed right now. I mean, the, the country of the Gulf is engulfed by its neighbors, uh, the, the, the Bahrainis, the Saudis, and the Emiratis that block them, like physically, not only uh, politically, but also physically from the air, from land, from sea. So uh, Qatar is now really blocked, and it's not only blocked on that side, it's also blocked uh, uh, politically. So I'll give you just one example, okay? So if we're talking about the money suitcases from Qatar, from Qatar to, to Gaza, uh, for every time we want to, uh, to, to, uh, to reconcile, like to, to, get, to, get, to get peace and quiet in, the, uh, in Gaza Strip. So uh, Israel uh, was a partner of that, like, of... Uh, of the line of the track, um, because it wanted, it, it had an interest to get a, to get a quiet region, and the Qataris were there with these money suitcases to get this um, to get this uh, quietness. So not anymore. Now Israel, if it can have a, a somewhat some kind of influence on that track, and it now if it has new partners to work to work with them to the Palestinians such as the Emiratis, I think that Israel will think twice whether to go with the Qataris to the Hamas to strengthen the Hamas or to choose different partners that will strengthen different leadership or different political figures in Gaza and in Ramallah. The UAE has undertaken extensive PR efforts to, quote-unquote, prepare for normalization including the Year of Tolerance initiative in 2019. How has the Emirati public responded to normalization? Do government-sponsored programs like the Year of Tolerance accurately reflect the population's view on normalization with Israel? Well, I believe that, so I believe that it's much so. I think that, well, first of all, there, there are polls to show that uh, 89% of the young Emiratis uh, voted in favor of the agreement. So this is something that we already saw in numbers, but I'm also feeling it from the field. I'm also feeling it from my friends and from their friends and from the other side, from the Emiratis and the Bahrainis. So there's a lot of enthusiasm, not only on the Israeli side, but also on the Emirati side. 
But we should also bear in mind that this is not only pink and roses, right? So there's, there are still antagonism. I mean, this is very, uh, uh, this is very natural. Uh, we cannot, like, I, there, there has been so many years when we were, uh, uh, we, we were just, we didn't know about the other side. So it will take time for some of the Israelis and for, so for some of the Emiratis to get used to the idea and to get to know each other in order to, uh, uh, to reduce this antagonism that still exists. We see that even today. And uh, I think that the UE has done a remarkable job in a so- on the social cultural sphere to warm the hearts of its people toward openness, as I said, in general, not only with Israel, but in general. Could you contrast that, Moran, with what's going on in Bahrain and, and how the average Bahraini, if one can speak in those terms, is viewing uh, the normalization agreement? I think that it's much more limited there uh, because of the diverse uh, society. It's less homogeneous. Uh, there's, of course, the, 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 the Jewish, uh, 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 the Jewish uh, 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 com- community over there. There, is, there are the Sunnis, there are the Shis, there are the Shis who are pro-Iranians, there are Shis who are patriotic Bahrainis. There are all kinds of uh, sects. So this is why I think that the, uh, uh, the legitimacy for this step is much more limited in Bahrain than opposed to the UAE, for example. So I'm just going to ask a couple more questions and then turn to audience questions. And we do have several, but uh, as a reminder, if anybody would like to ask a question, please type it in the Q&A box and I will get to as many as I can before the top of the hour. Mohan, now let's talk about Israelis. How have Israelis responded to normalization with the UAE? And how is this response compared to Israeli attitudes towards relations with Egypt and Jordan at this time? Well, first of all, as you understood, very enthusiastically, we are all very enthusiastic, but, but not only like the people, not only the people, but also the government. I've never seen the government sector so committed. As I said before, every ministry, I, I, I spoke during the last, I, I was anonymous in Israel, but on the last three months, I spoke with six ministries. So that was amazing. Every one of them wanted to learn about the UAE, wanted to engage somehow with the UAE. And I'm sure that there are many others that I wanted to. So on the governmental sector, on the public sector, on the private sector, everyone I wanted to engage now with the Gulf. And uh, they are very curious. And I think that um, I think that it made people think that uh, that we can do something different. Something different can be done with Egypt and with Jordan. For example, I'll give you one. I'll give you one example. Uh, one year ago, one year ago, the, the enclaves of Naharaim and Sofar, for those who knows a little bit about the Jordan-Israeli peace agreement, we had these two enclaves which were on lease with Israel and we had to let them go one year ago because of the tense political situation be- between the two countries. So that was on October, November 2019. And now a year later, we are talking about peace, not only a warm peace with uh, Egypt, we're talking about warm peace with other states. So I think it will, it will make us look on those states that we are already having peace with and to rethink about how to do it differently now that we see this enthusiasm with the Gulf as well. 
Um, so one more question for me, but I'm going to combine it with an audience, a question from a member of our audience. Uh, in what ways, if at all, can diplomatic progress between Israel and the Gulf countries be leveraged towards a sustainable agreement between Israel and the Palestinians? And one of our audience members, Eva Seligman Kennard, um, is asking, are these um, approchements um, between these uh, Gulf states helping to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian uh, issue, particularly regarding the two-state solution? Well, I think that's a great question. First of all, I think that uh, definitely, yes, there, there just, there's a lot to be gained from these agreements on the Palestinian side. First of all, we're getting to get to know our neighbors. That's one thing. So it's indirectly by this enthusiasm trend that we see today, because we are curious to know who are, who are our neighbors, we will probably be curious to know after that who, will, who are our neighbors on the Lebanese or on the Syrian side, but also with our Palestinian neighbors. So this is one thing, and I think it's a deeper, uh, it, it's a deeper pattern to think about, uh, for, for, uh, to think in these terms for Israelis. We used to be very close uh, nation to think about ourselves as an island within the Middle East, but now we're trying to, we're, we're opening ourselves to, so it will take time, but I think that on the long run, it will have a value. And another thing is that you, uh, the Emiratis and the Bahrainis are making us think regionally, not, all, not only bilaterally. So that's another issue, and the Palestinians will be part of that. And the third issue is that now we are uh, on this stage where there's, um, there's a political uh, like block. We can't do anything with this political leadership, uh, uh, mostly on the Palestinian side. And I think that for, uh, the Emiratis are saying that, uh, that the same thing themselves. So I think that we are all waiting to see a change in the leadership in order to move forward. And I think that the seeds that are being planted today in this agreement uh, will really grow once this uh, leadership will change and we could really interact with uh, uh, between the, uh, the the moderate Gulf states, the Palestinians, and Israel. So we have a couple of questions from our audience about today's developments. Um, Sarah Eric Selkov asks, please discuss the ramifications of today's news. The Palestinian Authority said it has decided to renew its relations with Israel, including including security coordination, after receiving assurances that Israel would abide by the signed agreements with the Palestinians. And Merrill Alpert adds to this question, what do you think is behind the PA restoring ties with Israel at this time? Is it a reflection of the fact that President-elect Biden is going to be the leadership representing the United States? <laughs> so I haven't heard the news today because I was so busy. Uh, okay. oh, by the way, no. <laughs> but I'm glad to hear about these developments. I think that the Palestinians have been long uh, uh, waiting to see something that is happening. And also the Israelis, uh, we should not be not critical of ourselves. Uh, we were on the sidelines as well, being in the middle of the conflict, but not trying to solve that, not coming with any peace initiative. And the peace initiative, the peace initiative came from without, uh, always came from, from, from the outside. Uh, and I think that now the Palestinians understand that they are left behind. And they need to be proactive, and they think, to, and they need to understand where can they put their feet, uh, 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 where where can they put their stand in this process that they are just 
they're, they're watching it from the sideline, but they're like in the middle of it. So that's a weird situation for them. I think that they will wait for the chance to, uh, to for the chance to jump in to see what can they gain from this step. We have a question from Bob Goodkind, who is a board member and vice chair of Israel Policy Forum, who asks you, Moran, do you see the UAE as having as a priority bringing about the resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict by means of two states for two peoples, that is, inserting itself as a mediator? The UAE as a mediator? Yes, I think that that is the, the main aim, the main goal of the Emiratis. I think that Uh, For many of the Gulf states, the tool, the political tool of being a mediator or an arbitrator in the Middle East or in general is a very important one. Uh, The UAE was an arbitrator between Ethiopia and uh, and Eritrea. Uh, By the way, we are seeing today uh, a a, a, a little bit uh, a shaky agreement, but by they led to that very important agreement also between the U.S. and the Taliban. And uh, as we know, the Qataris, we, we talked about it, how they want to be the negotiators between the, uh, the, the Hamas and the Fatah, the Hamas and Israel. They want to be on that place. And also the Egyptians and the, the Jordanians, sorry, and the Saudis with their, uh, their peace initiatives. Everyone wants to put their uh, foothold in the Palestinian, Israeli-Palestinian conflict and to try to solve that. And and it's important because it, it gives a lot of political prestige to have everyone who succeed in doing so. So I think that the UAE aims to do so, but now because of the political leadership, the UAE has no entrance to the official track, to the official levels, but the, the Qataris has, the Egyptian has, the Jordanian has, but the, uh, the Emiratis doesn't have at the moment. So that's why they're waiting to see a political change in the leadership, and after that, I think that they would jump on the opportunity to bridge between the two sides. But now Israel, I think, would be on a different place when it would want the Emiratis to be the arbitrator and not, for example, like the uh, the U.S.'s main uh, negotiator. We have a question from Nimrod Novik, who was our Israel Policy Forum's Israel Fellow. Nimrod, uh, points out that the UAE argued that normalization blocked annexation and provides it with some leverage with the Israeli government on the Palestinian issue. Can you suggest why it, the UAE, has remained silent regarding Har Homa, whereas Saudi Arabia, that is not normalized, came out against it? And just to be clear, Har Homa is um, a developing, uh, a rather large uh, community, very close to Bethlehem, it's in the West Bank, and of course, um, there are plans, I think, to increase the number of units, and it's a pretty, sign- pretty sizable area already. So the question is, why, why do you think the Emiratis were silent regarding plans for Har Homa and the Saudis have come out against it? So that's a good question, and it relates to your, one of your opening questions about the uh, uh, foreseen obstacles that we are going to see. And uh, I think that the Emiratis are now watching from uh, the side about the, uh, the Israeli steps in the West Bank. Uh, what are we doing there? I mean, yes, we halted the annexation, but there are, there are many things that are being done in this, area, in this region that are not for their, uh, 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 they, they do not like to see that, but 
But the UAE cannot intervene in every um, in every uh, a, a step that we see from the Israeli a, a, a political step that we see from Israel on that front. It would not stop its uh, this large process with every house that being built on that region. So I think that uh, the UAE knows that Israel has its own commitment to the process. And if it will just move, uh, there's like a red line. Israel has not crossed the red line. The red line is annexation. That's what I said. If Israel cross, uh, sorry, will cross that line, that would be something that is a big no-no. That will stop all the process that we're seeing today. But un until we reach, we reach the ceiling, Israel can do a lot, but it can also do a lot to annoy the other sides and also those who wanted to reach out to us. Uh, Leon Horowitz asks an interesting question. Are there Palestinian entrepreneurs and businessmen and women now living in the UAE and in Bahrain who might be interested in commercial and cultural partnerships with Israel, with Israeli and West Bank Palestinian entrepreneurs? Well, yes, I am personally familiar with some Palestinians that are living in the UAE and in Bahrain, mainly in the UAE. And, um, the, you, you, we, we should understand that the UAE has a very uh, business uh, culture, high business culture, and uh, things are being done there. And it's a totally different political uh, or, or, or organizational thinking uh, for the people who want to engage, who want to do business, who want to be practical and pragmatic people. So there, there is a lot to be done with every people, everyone who wants to deal with Israelis, with with regional actors in which, in general, and to and to do stuff together. So this is something that can definitely be done by everyone who is located now in the UAE and elsewhere in the Middle East. Zach Shank, who is an IPF leader based in Washington, asks if the Biden administration does take a softer approach on Iran. What indicators would you look for to see if Israel? the UAE, Bahrain, et cetera, are, quote-unquote, getting out ahead of the U.S. strategic approach to the region? Um, I, I'm not sure. Uh, well, I think that the Iranians are uh, going through their own uh, domestic stage where they need to understand how, to, how do they negotiate with the Europeans and with the, uh, with the Americans, with the new administrations, and for the Israelis and the other allies in the region, the new allies and the less overt allies, I think that they will need to find their place uh, as long as we see the new decision-making. We don't know what the Biden administration will decide towards Iran. We are still not aware of, I mean, what would be decided. And also Turkey, don't forget that Iran is not the only enemy here. We have also Turkey, which pose a great threat to the region. And we, we are meeting Turkey, for example, don't forget that we, we have a Turkish uh, a base, naval base, on uh, the territory of Qatar, next to the UAE. And there are rumors about Turkey wants to build a new naval base uh, in Oman. And there is the confrontation on the Eastern Mediterranean. And we have Turkey with the UAE confronting on the Libyan territory. 
So there is Iran and there is Turkey. And there are so many other forces that pose so many threats in the region. So I think the security now is the number one, number one uh, factor for any uh, big uh, policy, uh, uh, sorry, foreign policy that we see today, decision that we see today in the region. Uh, Leora Moriel asked, so short of annexation, because you talked about that, that that would basically be a deal breaker. But short of annexation, is everything permitted to Israel? Sorry? I'm not sure that I understand this question myself, although it's a good question. But short of annexation, is there anything that Israel can't do that, or you, know, you, you talked about annexation would stop everything in its tracks. Mm-hmm. But are there other things? I mean, I guess I could throw out an example. Some people are concerned about the fact that recently, um, you know, the United States um, agreed that um, biological research between American universities and universities based in the West Bank, like Ariel, can go forward. And some people see this as just another chink in moving towards annexation. I don't know if that's the best example, but the point is, are there things that Israel is not are there other things that Israel could do short of annexation that might affect where these normalization agreements are headed? Um, I, I'm not sure how to answer that. Okay. All right. And Leora, I apologize if I didn't capture your question well. Sorry. I, I, uh, I'm so sorry, Leora. You can, you can ask me again if you want to. You can retype and I'll try, try to okay. get it. Um, Jean Nassi asks, who might be a new leader for the Palestinians? We get this question on every call. So oh, yeah. Well, I, I, don't, <laughs> I hear analysis all the time. I don't want to be the speaker of an expert. I'm not an expert of the Palestinians. And I have uh, very good friends who are experts of the Palestinians. They have a great analysis on who would be the next leader. And of course, no one is a, is a prophet, but uh, they, all has, uh, they, they all have very, very intelligent interpretations. And I would urge you to, to listen to them, but not to myself about that. But uh, one thing that I'll add to that is that if we're talking about Palestinian allies to the Emiratis, and that's an important uh, point. I think that uh, uh, we cannot ignore the fact that Muhammad Akhlan is an important political figure who is now situated and is uh, sponsored or supported by the UAE's leadership. And uh, I think that he'll try, he's already trying to, uh, his way again to the, uh, uh, to the Palestinian arena. And now that Abu Mazen is, uh, is uh, 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 getting less and less political, uh, 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 political power, his power, power is really, really reduced every day. I think that this is the time for him and for other uh, 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 potential leaders to grow up. Um, okay, let me keep going here. We've got a couple more. Um, yeah. Alan Minton asks, uh, what do you think about the possibility of military coordination between Israel and the Gulf states with respect to dealing with the Iranian threat? Um, so one second. I'm, I'm opening the questions myself. To oh, see okay. Uh, okay. So the question about the military, can, can you repeat it? Sorry, Susie. Um, basically, he's asking, is there a chance for military cooperation or coordination between mm-hmm. Israel 
and UAE and uh, Bahrain and possibly other mm-hmm. Gulf states when it comes to dealing with the Iranian nuclear threat. Right. So one thing, one thing to remember is that there are already drills, security military drills that has been taking place in the last, I think, five or six years uh, that were multinational uh, between the Emiratis, the Israeli Air Forces, and also Greece, uh, the U.S., and other forces. Every year they met to, to do a, a joint uh, military drill and I think that we should not uh, uh, we should not uh, overrule this option. Uh, this is an option that exists, and um, this is something that to put on the table is an option. So um, yeah, definitely. So I don't think it will be the first choice, though I'm not a, a, a commander in chief. But uh, they will take all necessary steps to, to, to confront it on the diplomatic level before going into the military level. But drills have already been taking place for years now, and they will, uh, they will probably uh, extend in the next future. So I'm going to circle back to Leora's question. Thank you. She added more, more of a question, <laughs> which I think um, sort of makes it more explicit what she's looking to, to hear from you on. Basically, okay. when she asks if annexation is the only the only red line, are there other steps that de facto reinforce Israel's presence in the West Bank? Settlement construction, the recent U.S.-Israel MOU that I referred to. Um, I would add the Givat Hamatos tenders. I know this might be uh, drilling down for some folks, but Givat Hamatos is an area next to Beit Safafa um, in it's called East Jerusalem, although it's not, it's more south than east. Um, but in any event, uh, Israel just announced a couple of days ago, or maybe it was a few more days than a couple of days ago, um, that is accepting tenders for developing that area, that development of Givada Matos, which has been blocked by every previous U.S. administration, um, would certainly affect the ability uh, of the Palestinians to eventually have a, a, state, a pal- state of Palestine with territorial contiguity. And I would note the date for the return of the tenders, I believe, is January 18th, uh, or finalization of the tenders. It's two days before the U.S. election. So what she's basically asking is, are there steps that Israel is taking and could take that would cause diplomatic problems between Israel and the Gulf states? Yes. So I've mentioned several uh, other uh, scenarios that can be uh, on part of the West Bank, like not talking about the West Bank, there are so many other scenarios that can be uh, an obstacle to the relations, but talking about on the West Bank, so apart from annexation, we'll, we'll keep hearing about this uh, 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 construction building in different places uh, uh, on these areas. And I think that uh, this is something that we, we, we it's, it's like, uh, uh, it's like we're, shooting, we're shooting ourselves on the, on the uh, on the photos, it's 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 ridiculous because because um, the UAE is watching on that from the from the side. It it's it basically uh, uh, reach out her hand its end to us, and what we are doing is like we're from like this little boy just uh, trying to 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 play with this glass ceiling of annexation and do like whatever we can until we get to, to this red line. So I think it will be they will be furious uh, if we keep doing that on the on the on the long run. 
Uh, I think that now, since it's so fresh, these, uh, these relations are so fresh, so we are now in this phase of like learning each other. What are the red lines? I mean, there is the declared red line that they said, which is the annexation, but there's the like non-declared red lines. And these are things now that are being built or shaped or reshaped in the next, in the next few months. So I think that we are now like maybe testing them. I don't know. But it's, uh, I don't think it's, it's, it's a smart diplomacy from uh, my country, from Israel. And uh, this is something that should be not really tested under the new, if we want to see the new Middle East emerging, this is not the way to do that. I want to ask one more question myself, which has to do with the arms uh, deal aspect to these normalization agreements. So as you know, the... Emiratis are getting F-35s. Um, the Bahrainis obviously are interested in, in arms uh, being uh, provided to them as in exchange for normalization. It's notable that the Israeli military establishment was certainly not, let's, can we say kindly, not enthusiastic about the sale of F-35s. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, the reporting was that Prime Minister Netanyahu didn't even consult with his defense minister, alternate Prime Minister Benny Gantz, about these um, arms agreements. What is your sense of what the expectations are now among other Gulf states that have not yet formalized normalization with Israel? Is everybody looking for um, an arms handout um, and you know that escalating development? What does that do to Israeli security in the long term? Um, I would not overrule the option that it is an interest of Israel to strengthen uh, UAE's security abilities. Uh, we talked about the lack of American uh, security shield in the region, and it's uh, reducing interest to be involved in military conflicts. So now that there are like the that uh, the countries want to take charge on uh, the security of the region, we should not be alone in this. We should see who are our potential allies and to strengthen them through also what, what else can we do through also arms deals. Uh, I think that it's uh, something that uh, is also of our interest. Don't forget that uh, the Emiratis are involved in places that Israel is not and has an interest to see the UAE on the upper hand. And uh, this is one way to, to, to cooperate and to, to see that happening, just to strengthen this ally through security uh, interests and, uh, and uh, military purchases. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Moran, thank you so much. This has been really enlightening, and I really appreciate your, your uh, joining us. Uh, once again, I want to thank our supporters who are with us on today's call. Your generosity makes programs like this one possible. So again, if you have not yet done so, please consider making a contribution at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thank you all for joining us today. Once more, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, sign up to receive the weekly Coplo column in your inbox, and visit our website to access recordings of our previous briefings. Please also stay tuned for an announcement about our next video briefing 
which will take place on Tuesday, November 24th at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Remember, if it's Tuesday, it's an IPF webinar. Until then, stay safe and stay healthy, and we'll see you again soon.